Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 22, verses 63 to 71. So turn to Luke 22 in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab the Pew Bible uh, under the seat in front of you. You can find, if you're using a Pew Bible, you can find Luke 22 on page 830. So go ahead and turn there in your your Bibles. This is our uh, last sermon on uh, out of the Gospel of Luke for a little bit. Um, we're gonna we're gonna jump into an Advent sermon series coming up in a couple of weeks, going through um, Matthew's account of the birth narrative. Um, so we're gonna spend some time there. Um, we're gonna have uh, some some different sermons and some guest preachers after the the new year. I'm gonna take a few weeks off from preaching to, to be home with uh, with my wife and the birth of our new son. And then we're going to jump back into the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23 uh, for the season of Lent in 2022 leading up to, to Easter. So that's kind of the, the plan of where we're heading with our sermon, sermon series coming up in the next few uh, next few weeks. This morning, though, we're looking at the uh, initial stages of uh, Jesus' trial. We saw in the, coming, in, in the previous few weeks, he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was taken to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. Peter followed along, and then Peter uh, denies Jesus three uh, times. We saw all of those things in the, the verses leading up to, to this one. And now we're going to see Jesus himself kind of being uh, questioned by the uh, religious leaders. And the questions that they ask him and the answers that he gives them are kind of going to give us, as believers today, give us some insight into the person of Christ, who he is, uh, kind of the, the titles that he claims for himself, the offices that he occupies. It's going to give us um, some insight into who Jesus is, and then um, that itself is going to give us maybe some insight or some direction into how we, as the people of God, should respond. So who Jesus is and how we are to respond to Jesus is what we're going to see this morning as we as we work through. So uh, I'm going to read through Luke 22, verses 63 to 71, and then, uh, then pray, and we'll get to, get to work. It says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And when the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, then tell us. But he said, I tell you, I will I tell you, you will not believe. If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? You have heard it. We have heard it ourselves from his own Father in heaven, we ask your blessing on these next few minutes. Lord, we ask that you would come here and meet with us and give us grace. Lord, we pray that the, the preaching of your word would serve to edify your people and that it would serve to uh, glorify your name and to, to make you uh, famous. We, we long for, for you to be made much of through the ministry of our church and through our lives as believers. And we ask that you would uh, instruct us and equip us and mobilize us for that, uh, even in these next few minutes. 
All right. The men who were holding Jesus uh, in custody were mocking him as they, as they beat him. So Jesus has been taken from the Garden of Gethsemane to the home of the high priest. Uh, they immediately kind of start this, you know, uh, trial pr- proceedings in the middle of the night, which is actually against the, against the rules. Uh, right, you, you weren't allowed to hold trial at night. You weren't allowed to hold capital trials at night. In fact, uh, you know the trials that involved capital punishment were uh, exclusively to be done during the day. So much so that even if you have a trial in the middle of the night, uh, you couldn't even announce the verdict until, uh, or if you had a trial that happened during the day and the proceedings went in, like if the sun went down, then you had to stop. And even if you're like, okay, we have a verdict, they're like, well, you can't say it until the next day because it had to be done uh, during. During the, the daylight, but that's not, this is kind of these guys are bending the rules, if not just outright breaking them. Take Jesus right in the middle of the night, and they, you know, there's no presumption of innocence. There's no due process. They immediately treat him as if he's guilty, as if he, you know, has no rights, uh, less than a man, less than a than a human being. They start, uh, you know, torturing him, as it were, uh, you know, beating him, uh, brutal, and it's not just it's physical, you know torture, physical beatings, but also psychological and emotional. They're, they're, they're making fun of him. They're mocking him, saying, you know, they, they blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that, that struck you? Jesus claimed to be a prophet on multiple uh, occasions. He spoke as a prophet. He identified as a prophet. Um, and so that this reputation preceded him. The guards knew that he, uh, you know, identified, you know, claimed to be a prophet. So they're making fun of him, right? You're you're a, a, a prophet. Who is it that you know? Who is it that that hit you? So it's kind of a it's a physical assault. It's it's a psychological uh, you know torture as it as it were. Right? They're basically saying like if you're if you're a prophet, uh, if, if it's true that you're a prophet, you're a teacher. You have special revelation from God. God gives you special insight and revelation that He doesn't give to anyone else. Then. Why doesn't he reveal to you that I'm about to, you know, punch you in the face? Why doesn't he tell you to, to, to duck? It's, it's brutal. It's cruel. There's no remorse. They're, they're lather. These men are standing uh, in judgment over God himself, laughing at him, punching him. Verse 65, then they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Blasphemy is... Uh, blasphemy is when you take the name of God that is holy and set apart and special and deserves special reverence and you treat it uh, commonly or profanely uh, or, or disrespectfully. Um, and so the irony here, so Luke is saying these men were, were hitting Jesus, making fun of Jesus, striking him, laughing at him, and they were blaspheming him. Blasphemy was the, it was Jesus had been accused over the course of his life of being guilty of blasphemy. Uh, and, and so the, the irony is that uh, these men were committing blasphemy. All right. so, so, yeah, the, the, the common accusation against Jesus was you are, your life and your claims about being God and about being able to forgive sin and about, you know, God being your father and you being son, all of these claims that you make are... Uh, well, A, they're not true. We don't think that you really are God or that you are the Son of God or that you have divine status or that you have the right to forgive sins. But, but your saying that they're true is it's insulting to the name of God, right? If you claim to be God, that is taking God who is 
uh, holy and set apart and worthy of respect, and it's treating God's name disrespectfully. So Jesus had consistently kind of been accused of blasphemy. But the irony is, like, blasphemy is only something that you can do to, to God, right? If you, if you treat someone that's... If you, you can only... For a person that's not God, for a person that's a created being, you can disrespect them, um, but you can't blaspheme, you can't be guilty of blasphemy against them, because blasphemy is something that's, by definition, only something that you can, you can't, right, you can't steal from someone who has no possessions, you can't murder an inanimate object, and you can't commit blasphemy against a creature that is not divine. And so, uh, Jesus himself had been accused of blasphemy, and Luke is saying they were blaspheming him, which is basically another way of Luke affirming the divinity of Christ. Luke is saying Jesus was God. They were treating him with disrespect. They were treating him um, with profanity. They were treating him in a way that is not befitting a God, a person who is divine, and that is, is blasphemy. Jesus uh, is God. Uh, Jesus is the, the, you know, Jesus wasn't committing blasphemy when he claimed to be God. They were committing blasphemy when they were hitting him and disrespecting him and belittling him. And so the irony here is that ultimately the sin that Jesus is accused of, the sin that Jesus is going to die on the cross for, uh, he wasn't guilty of. And the people who put him on the cross were guilty of that exact sin against, against Jesus. And this happens all night. This happens for, you know, uh, Jesus went directly from the Garden of Gethsemane to this home where this is happening. And then in verse 66, uh, we kind of jump fast forward to the, to the, the morning, right, to, to after dawn. When day came, the assembly of the elders and the people, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and the scribes. So you've got, you know, the religious leaders, the civil, political, judicial leaders. They're all gathering together in what's called the, the Sanhedrin. And they kind of, you know, they, they've kind of been, uh, like, they, they waited on purpose until day came because of those rules about trials not being able to happen at night. But they were just kind of getting a head start on it the night before, trying to, you know, get their ducks in a row so that they could get Jesus, kind of push him through the uh, judicial process as quickly as possible at the first exact moment that they were allowed to. And they led him away to their council and they said, If you are the Christ, then tell us. Uh, the Christ here um, means, uh, the word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means the anointed one. It's the, it's the Greek uh, word for the Jewish word Mashiach or Messiah. If you, uh, the, the word Christ and the word Messiah are synonyms. They just kind of come from different languages. If you see the word uh, Messiah in the Old Testament or a word that's translated as Messiah in the Old Testament, when that's translated into Greek, it becomes Christ. So they're saying, if you are the Messiah, then we want you to tell us. Jesus had claimed to be the Messiah uh, any number of, of, of times through, throughout his, his life and his ministry, but they just kind of want, you know, they want, the sound, they want a soundbite. They want, like, we want you to tell us right now in a word, like, we, we, you know, we want you to give us the incriminating evidence that we want so that we can open and shut this case and proceed with um, with with killing you. So are you the Messiah? Are you the, the Christ? If you are, we want you to tell us. The Christ, the Messiah, just a uh, background, because we're going to see a few different terms throughout this text, right? Uh, 
Christ and then Son of Man and then Son of God. And I want to just dive briefly into each of those and consider what they are and what they mean. The Christ was this kind of uh, umbrella term in the uh, Old Testament, well, in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament to mean the person who would bring about the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. Right, The person who God has anointed, the anointed one, literally what the Messiah means, the anointed one. So the anointed one that God has kind of established and brought, you know, he is going to be the one that brings about the fulfillment of all of God's promises. As you read through the Old Testament, you see tons and tons of promises that God makes to his people. Right, And you see uh, promises specifically about a coming one, a coming person who would bring those promises to, to pass. It literally uh, starts with you know Genesis 3. Uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and God is kind of cursing uh, the Adam and Eve and the serpent. They're, they're kind of the fall and the, the brokenness that's invited into the world because of sin. And part of God's curse to Eve, he says, you're going to experience pain uh, during childbearing. Um, and then he says, uh, you know, but you, Eve, one day uh, down the road, you are going, there's going to be a descent. You're going to have a son, right? Uh, you know, you're going to have a son, and that son is going to uh, be the son of a woman, but he is going to crush the head of the, of the serpent, Satan. So here's Satan and his offspring that are, that are perpetually at war with God and the people of God. And here's Eve and her offspring, and one singular male boy that's going to be born of a woman is going to be the one who is, is kind of God is, has anointed to, to do battle with the serpent, do battle with Satan, and to ultimately destroy the force of sin and death in the world. And it says, uh, it says uh, he will bruise his heel... Right? He, the serpent, will bruise the heel of the son of the woman. But the son of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Right? So, so the implication is uh, the, the Messiah, the son, the descendant of Eve, is going to uh, be wounded in the process of saving his people. But as he is wounded, he is actually going to kill and destroy once and for all Satan, the serpent, who is trying to do harm to God's people. Which, of course, is exactly what we see in the person and work of Christ at the cross. Jesus is wounded. He is, uh, you know, Satan inflicts a painful blow on Christ. But also, while that's happening, Jesus inflicts a fatal, uh, you know, blow on Satan. That's kind of the first seeds of the, what we see of the Messiah. He's going to be a descendant of Eve. He's going to do battle with Satan. He's going to defeat Satan. He's going to save his people. But he's going to be wounded in the, the process. But as you keep flipping through the Old Testament, you get more and more of a picture of who this Messiah is and who he is going to be. This to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless the entire world through the nation that I bring from your offspring. And the way that the, the, the nation that's going to come from Abraham's offspring is going to bless the world is that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is going to come out of it. That's Christ, right? To, to Abraham's uh, great-great-grandchild, Judah, uh, the scepter will not depart from... There's 12 tribes of, of Israel, one of which is Judah. And his father says, Judah, the scepter will not depart from your, child and t- from your tribe until it comes to him. Until it comes to the Messiah, the promised one that is to come. God tells Moses... I'm going to raise up a prophet like you. He's going to declare God's word to God's people and fulfill all of the promises of God. God says to David, I'm going to raise up a king like you. 
He's going to rule over my people and conquer their enemies and establish his throne forever. God says to Isaiah, I'm going to raise up a servant. He's going to be despised and rejected and stricken and smitten and afflicted. And he will bear the sins of his people and he will be pierced for their transgressions as an offering for sin. All throughout the Old Testament, promise after promise after promise. Right, The profile is shaped and sharpened and comes into clearer focus all throughout the Old Testament. I will save you. I will redeem you. I will provide for you. I will be faithful to you. Those promises all kind of intersect on, they all find their fulfillment in the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God. These guys are saying to Jesus, is that you? Are you that God? Are you Eve's descendant, Moses' prophet, David's king, Isaiah's servant? Are you the person that God has promised who's going to rescue us and save us and conquer our enemies and rule over us and reverse the curse and put things back the way that they were created to be? You seem to think that you are. You seem to act like you are. We've heard you imply that you are. We've heard that you have said that you are. So just set the record straight right here, right now. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. <coughs> In other words, I'm not going to dignify that question with a response. Like, you are asking me for a ready-made soundbite of a response and I am not going to going to, to give it to you because I know that you're not asking with sincere motives, right? You uh, you just want evidence for your trial, you want bullets for your gun, but you don't really genuinely want to engage with me and interact with me about who I am and what I what I came to do. So it would be futile for me to enter into a dialogue with you. Your minds are already made up. Not to mention, uh, Jesus is probably thinking, if you have heard anything about me, if you have heard any of the things that I've said in public, if you've seen any of the events that have transpired in my life, then you would know full well that, yes, I am the Christ, and yes, I claim to be, right? I mean, Luke 2, right? The angels come to the shepherds, uh, and they say, for unto you this Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Luke 9, Jesus is talking to Peter. He says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ of God. And and Jesus affirms him. He doesn't correct him or rebuke him. He affirms him. In Luke 20, Jesus is is, uh, kind of interacting with and dialoguing with and debating with these very religious leaders. And their, their dialogue is about whose son is the Christ is the Christ David's son, or is he David's Lord? Right? It is uh, who is higher, David or the Messiah? But they're asking that question specifically uh, in the context of Jesus and his ministry. He's claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah. Matthew twenty-four. Jesus says, "Don't be fooled. After I'm gone, many false Christs are going to come after me. But you don't be fooled. Instead, wait for the real Christ to return." I.e. Me, like Jesus is saying, I am the Christ. John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus has been very clear throughout the context of his life and his ministry that he is the Christ. 
So, it's not that he's not the Christ. It's not why he doesn't answer plainly and emphatically and declaratively, yes, I am. It's just that all the evidence has already been in, and he's basically saying, I'm not going to, like, you are engaging in this, uh, you know, immoral prosecution. Like, you've arrested me under false pretenses, and I'm not going to give, I'm not going to do your job for you and, like, give you uh, evidence so that you can arrive at a, at a, a, a corrupt conclusion for your, for your trial. Says, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna give you the soundbite you're looking for, but I will. Like, but then in verse 69, he does give them, frankly, way more than they were looking for in terms of evidence that Jesus claims uh, about who he claims to be. So, I'm not gonna tell you, uh, and if you ask, I'm not gonna answer. Right? If I ask, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So on the one hand, I'm not going to give you the one-word answer about being the Messiah that you're asking for, but this, this sentence that Jesus says about being the Son of Man who will be seated at the right hand of the power of God is, is you know, unquestionably, uh, just painfully clear about who He is, and actually that He is claiming not only to be the Messiah, but to be God him, Himself. The word Son of Man, the title Son of Man, is... Uh, probably Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. He does so dozens and dozens of times throughout the course of the, of the four Gospels. And it kind of is, it's pregnant with meaning, the word Son of Man, the title Son of Man. Um, on the, in, in one sense, kind of at its simplest level, it literally just means a, a human being, right? A, a son of a human, a son of man, a human being. If you look through the Old Testament and you look for the phrase "son of man," you're going to see the vast majority of them uh, in the Book of Ezekiel, and it's used by God to speak to humans, and He calls them "son of man." It basically is a stand-in for human being, created being. You are a son of man. I am God, the sovereign Creator of all things. You are the son of man. You are a son of man, right? I'm an authority. You are a person. So when Jesus says, "I'm the son of man," In one sense, he's saying, I'm a human being. I'm fully human. I'm a, I'm a person. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a phantom. I'm not an alien pretending to be a human being. I'm an actual, real, flesh and blood, fully human, human being. So that's part of what Jesus is claiming when he says, Son of Man. However, uh, there's one instance of the use of the phrase, Son of Man, in the Old Testament that kind of transcends the idea of, I'm a human being, I'm a flesh and blood uh, person. And that's in Daniel chapter 7. The book of Daniel is crazy. It's like, you know, you, you read through it, there's all of these dreams and all of these, like, th- you know, interpretations of dreams and just a lot of really enigmatic uh, things that are going on in the book of Daniel, most of which have to do with Daniel uh, either dreaming about or interpreting other people's dreams about what's going to happen over the course of human history. And so in Daniel chapter 7 in particular, uh, there's a dream about uh, four great beasts. And those great beasts represent human history. They represent human kingdoms that are to come. They kind of represent the progression of human history. And these four beasts join together in their collective rebellion against God and their pursuit to be their own gods and their pursuit to rule over their own lives at God. So one beast gives way to another, gives way to another, gives way to another, in the same way that one human kingdom 
rises and falls and gives way to another, which rises and falls and gives way to another. But after all four of these beasts kind of live and and die, in Daniel chapter 7, God comes back and kind of uh, marks the end of human history and marks the return of God to make things the way that he wants them to be and to put an end to human rebellion and insurrection once in for all. We see this in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. Right, let's do. Let's go one one slide back. We've got the. There we go. It says thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool, and his throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. So Daniel has just seen those four beasts, one after the other, after the other, after the other, and now he sees this. Right, the ancient of days, God Himself coming back on His throne, throne of fire, white like blazing white clothing and hair, a stream of fire issued and and came out from before him. Thousands of thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. This is God himself returning to earth, establishing his kingdom, judging his people or judging his enemies, saving his people. That's the picture of what we see in Daniel chapter 7. Let's look at the next slide. It says, And the beast was killed, and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. For the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. So all of those human kingdoms and all of the rebellion that they all represented, that's done away with. And God's people are saved, and the books are opened, and all people are judged in accordance with what they've done and how they have lived their lives. This is the scene at the end of human history. The beasts represent human history. This is the scene at the end of human history. And then in verses 13 to 14, it says, And behold, this is like this is going to be how. It kind of zooms in and gives you the specifics of how that scene is going to be accomplished. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. So Jesus is picking up on when he calls himself the Son of Man. There came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the ancient... That's God the Father. So the Son of Man is different than the Ancient of Days. And the Son of Man uh, comes on the clouds of heaven, and he comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before them, and to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never, ever be destroyed. So the Son of Man is different than the Ancient of Days, He's different than God the Father, as it were. But he also shares some of the... He he looks an awful lot like the Ancient of Days because he too is sitting on a throne and he too is being worshipped by all peoples of every nation and language. And he too has a dominion that is everlasting and will never pass away. And he is the king and his kingdom will never be destroyed. there's, There's ambiguity between the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. In a sense, they're both God. But in a sense, they're different persons because they interact with one another and they, they are distinct from one another, but they both share similar attributes of divinity. And so the Son of Man is uh, different. Than, the, the Son of Man is... Uh, if, 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 to claim to be the Son of Man is different and, and higher and more significant and more weighty than it is to claim to be the the Messiah. To claim to be the Messiah, you could you could make a claim in ancient Israel that I am the Messiah without necessarily implying that I am God Himself. 
right? You can say, I'm the human Messiah that God, who I am not him, but God has anointed me to fulfill his promises to the people of God. But I'm just a regular God. I'm a person, flesh and blood, live, die, buried in the ground, right? But to claim to be son of man, to claim to be uh, the one that, that is ushered into the presence of the Ancient of Days and is going to rule forever and ever on a throne alongside the Ancient of Days is to claim to be God. So when Jesus says, I'm the son of man, he's saying, I'm a human being, a real person with flesh and blood, and I am uh, this person who will reign in the presence of God, alongside God, from a throne, given eternal dominion and honor and authority from God. And Jesus in, Ma- in Luke 22 says, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He's picking up language there from Psalm 110, where the psalmist says, uh, the, God says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, and you will shatter kings execute judgment. He's also picking up on Psalm 2, where God says to the Messiah, You are my son. I will make the nations your inheritance. I will make the nations your heritage. I will make the ends of the earth your possession. Blessed are all who take refuge in the, the Son. So when Jesus, so they say, Are you the Christ? And he says, Not going to answer that question. Not going to dignify it with a response. But, for what it's worth, I'm the Son of Man, and I will be seated at the right hand of of the power of God. He's kind of saying, he's saying you have, uh, you, you are way above your pay grade. You are asking, like, you're asking questions down here and I'm talking way up here, levels and levels higher. Right? Right? I, I you know, if you're, you're scandalized by the thought of me claiming to be the Messiah, right? A, uh, uh, figure that's not necessarily divine, but someone who is the the descendant of Eve, the lion of Judah, the prophet like Moses, the king like David, the servant from Isaiah, right? You're scandalized at me saying that I'm that, but I'm saying I'm not just the human Messiah, but I am God himself. I am the, I am co-eternal with the father. I am the one who's going to defeat the enemies of God, rule alongside the father, Right? Everyone in all of creation is going to bow before me and worship me, or they're going to be cast out of my presence and judged and punished by me. Jesus is claiming to be far more than what the religious leaders are asking him. If it's like, uh, you know, it's like if a hundred dollars gets stolen, and the the DA tries to figure out who do, his his like investigations him that like I think I think I know who figured out who stole the hundred dollars. It's Bernie Madoff. He brings him in and arrests him for stealing $100. And he's like, dude, like you're, you're way... I stole billions. I stole tens of billions of dollars. So I don't know what you're talking about, about this, about $100. Jesus says, you're asking me if I'm the human Messiah. I'm telling you I am the divine sovereign son of man who created you and made you and owns you and you owe everything to me. And the religious leaders know that's what he's saying. They get it, which is why they ask what they ask, right? They said, are you, are you the son of God? I mean, are, you're saying you're the son of man that's going to be seated at the right hand of the power of God. What you're saying then, Jesus, is that you are literally the son of God. You are God himself in the flesh. Are you telling us that you are the son of God then, right? They recognize that Jesus is, is claiming to be, I mean, the second person of the Trinity, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. 
completely unified yet distinct from one another. And they're saying, are you claiming to be the special, unique Son of God, so much so that, you are, that you're saying God is your Father and that, that you are making yourself equal with God? Did you create us? Are you sovereign over us? Are you the one that we are going to bow down before and worship for all of eternity? And he says, you say that I am. Which is another way of saying yes. Um, in, uh, in Matthew 26, Jesus says, one of you at the, there at the Last Supper. He says, one of you at the table with me to betray me and is going to uh, you know, betray me over to the hands of my enemies. And Judas says, am I the one? And Jesus says, you have said so. Here they say, are you the son of God? Jesus says, you have said so. Right? Like, you have said so is basically uh, to say, yes, what you've said is true. I wouldn't change it. It's accurate word for word. So are you the son of God then? And he effectively says, yes, I am. You say that I am, and I'm not going to correct you. I'm not going to change a word of what you just said about me and about who I am. And then they say, what further testimony do we need? Right? We've heard it from ourselves. We've heard it uh, you know, for his, from his own lips. The, uh, the other Gospels give some, some additional details into what happened at this exact moment. They're like completely, they, they just can't believe what they heard. They're like, they're like you know, what, what we don't, why are we even still here? Right? Cases like uh, Matthew says that they, um, uh, or Mark says that the high priest was so scandalized and so enraged that he tore his clothes off because he just couldn't believe what he was hearing. Matthew says that they began to spit in his face and strike him similar to what the guards were doing the night before because they realized full well what he is saying, right? I am the Messiah. I am the, uh, I, everything good that God has ever promised is going to be channeled through me and my ministry. I'm the son of man. I'm, I am co-eternal with God, right? All of the sovereignty and supremacy and authority that you understand God to have, I have it. I'm the son of God. I'm fully divine. I have enjoyed an inter-Trinitarian relationship with God and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity. That's who I am. The religious leaders understand him. That They hear him loud and clear. They understand exactly what he's saying. And they hate him for it. More than anyone has ever hated anyone else, these religious leaders loathe and despise Jesus right now in this, in this moment. They represent the elite. They represent the educated, right? The, uh, I, I am the high priest of Israel. Israel is the chosen nation among the whole planet and of the chosen nation I am the one man who's been chosen to lead them. I'm the holiest person among the holiest group of people on the entire planet. I know God better than anyone. I am the authority on all things religious. Who in the world is this uneducated poor blue collar, homeless vagabond that dares to come into my presence and claim to have authority over me, claim that I should be worshiping him, claim that he knows more about God than I do. This is the, the most offensive thing that anyone could ever say to the, to the high priest. This is the most insulted that he could ever be. 
because of it, he resolves to murder Jesus, right? The religious leaders collectively resolve to murder Jesus. Jesus healed tons of people over the course of his ministry. That's not why he was killed. Jesus taught over all kinds of things to all different kinds of people. That's not why he was killed. He, he performed miracles. He fed people. That's not why he was killed. Jesus raised people from the dead. That's not why he was killed. The reason Jesus was killed is because he claimed to be God. Period. John 5.18, it says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, which in and of itself was offensive to them, but not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but Jesus was calling God his own Father, and thereby making himself equal with God. That's blasphemy. very thing that said that they were doing to Jesus, blaspheming Jesus, they understood Jesus to be doing to the, the holy and righteous and set-apart name of God. Jesus, you are committing the sin of blasphemy when you claim to be God, you are insulting God, and you are insulting us, the people of God, who are tasked with preserving God's holiness and His reputation. They murdered Him. Jesus died because he claimed to be God. Last week I, I went and saw uh, a movie about the life and ministry and the conversion of C.S. Lewis. One of the most influential Christian thinkers and apologists and theologians of the last, you know, hundred years or so. He was a skeptic for a really long time. He didn't believe in God. He was raised in a religious household, but he stopped believing in God. Uh, he was quoted as saying uh, that I am furious with God for not existing. And I'm equally furious with God for creating a world as faulty and frail as this one. So, so C.S. Lewis hate, didn't believe in God because like, he looked around at the world around him, pain, suffering, hardship, and he says, because the world is the way that it is, a, I don't believe in God, and B, I hate God, right? Uh, I, if, if God exists, I hate Him. I don't believe that He exists. I believe in Him enough to hate Him, but I don't believe in Him enough to acknowledge that He is, is real. And he spent years and years in that space of skeptic and uh, someone who didn't believe in God. What convinced him to become a Christian was the, the life and work of Jesus, but specifically the reality that Jesus claimed to be God. He realized the weight of that claim, and he realized the implications of that claim for him. Right, right. If, if Jesus, if since Jesus claimed to be God, uh, then either he was right, and C.S. Lewis said, and I, if he's right, I have to believe in him, I have to worship him, or if he's wrong, I have to dismiss him outright couldn't bring himself to do the latter and dismiss Jesus outright so he saw himself as having no other options other than to do the former which is to believe in Jesus and worship him and he writes about that experience and that struggle and that kind of fork in the road that polarizing from the road that Jesus is he writes about it in mere Christianity and I got a few paragraphs that I wanted to read out of it it says here comes the real shock in the first century Right? Jesus turns up and he goes about talking as if he was 
God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed. He says that he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. God, in their language, meant the being who was outside of the world and who made the world and who was infinitely different from everything in the world. And when you've grasped that, when you've grasped the reality that Jesus claimed to be God, you will see that what this man said was, quite simply, the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. Let's do the next next slide. One part of the claim tends to slip by, uh, past us unnoticed, that we've heard it so often that we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins. Any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man might forgive offenses against himself. You tread on my toe and I'll forgive you. You steal my money and I will forgive you. But what should we make of a man himself unrobbed and himself untrodden on who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Asinine fatuity is the kindest description that we should give of his conduct. And yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven. He never waited to consult all of the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if Jesus really was the God whose laws were broken and whose love was wounded in every single sin, in the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. So what I'm trying to do here is prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who is merely a man uh, and said these sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. And you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us he did not intend to. We are faced then with a frightening alternative. Jesus either was and is just what he said, or else a lunatic or something worse. I do not believe that he was a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that Jesus was and is God. God himself has landed on this enemy-occupied world in human form. He realizes exactly what the religious leaders realized. Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to have authority over me and my life. He's claiming to be the sovereign king of the world. 
So now we need to decide what to do with that information. And he leaves, he, he, he eliminates a vast majority of the options that we uh, would have reserved for ourselves if we, if we could, right? Either we say that Jesus was mistaken, right? He actually really thought that he was God. He could have passed the lie detector test when he said, I am God. But he was just wrong. So he's crazy. He's mentally ill. He needs to be in a psychiatric ward. Or we can say Jesus was lying. He knew that he wasn't God and he said that he was because he's a con man. He's, a, he's power hungry. He's trying to, to get people to follow him and worship him because he is a megalomaniac and he's guilty of blasphemy and he should go to hell. Or Jesus was right when he said that he was God. Right? He's the second person of the Trinity. He came to save sinners. He died on the cross for them so that they can be forgiven and reconciled to, to God. Right? We either have to take one and dismiss everything that Jesus said as the ravings of a, of a madman and just roll your eyes at anyone who is foolish enough to believe him. Or we take option two, which is what the religious leaders did. Right? Which is where you see Jesus not as a, as a lunatic who deserves my sympathy, but as a, a heretic, as a, a vile, a, a villain who deserves the worst possible treatment that I could give to I mean, Punching him in the face, spitting on him, blindfolding him, beating him, making fun of him, laughing at him, nailing him to a cross, hanging him in the... In, that, that is, that's just scratching the surface of what this man deserves based on how bad he is, how evil he is. He is without a doubt the most wicked, evil, vile person who has ever walked the face of the earth and we should hate him. It's our duty to hate him and to make an example out of him and torture him and humiliate him so that no one else will do this wicked, vile thing that he is doing. It's what the religious leaders did in, in Luke 22. That's one of the options that we can, of how we can respond to Jesus and his claim to be God. Or we can take option three, which is Fall on your face before him because he is, in fact, God and Lord. He created us. He owns us. We belong to him. So we bow our knee to him. We submit to his authority and his Lord. Jesus says, turn from your sin. We turn from our sin. Jesus says, trust in me. Trust in the sufficiency of my death on the cross, my resurrection to save you. And we trust him to, to save us. Jesus says, follow me in costly discipleship and we follow him as his disciple because he is God and we are not. He created us. We are the creature. We answer to him. We are accountable to him. There's no, there's no middle ground with, with Jesus. What you can't say is, I like Jesus. I've got no problem with Jesus. I think highly of Jesus. Right? I've benefited greatly from a lot of the things that Jesus has said, but... I'm going to live my life on my own terms. I'm spiritual but not religious. I believe in Jesus, but I'm not going to listen to Him and obey Him. I'm the one who gets the final say in my life. I'm the one who makes my own choices of what I'm going to do. That falls to me, not to Jesus. I don't need anyone else speaking into my life or trying to tell me what to do. Jesus says, that would be a perfectly appropriate response if all I said was that I am a good 
moral teacher. That's all I claim to be. But I claim to be God. So you either have to worship me and trust me as your Savior and obey me as your God, or you have to walk out altogether. Venture out into the rest of your life all yourself. Venture out into eternity all by yourself. Because because if you don't see Jesus as God and trust Him as Savior and worship Him as God and obey Him as God, then you are, like, if you take what you understand to be this fourth option of indifference or I'm totally fine with Jesus, but I am my own authority unto myself and I don't have to listen to Him or obey Him, that is effectively taking... One of the first, like that's effectively uh, that's an act of aggression against Jesus, right? If if you if you own a, if you're a landlord, you own a home, and you go to the to your tenant, and you say rent is due on the first of the month, and he says, "Yeah, I'm not going to pay that." And you're like, "Well, I mean, you you have to, really, right? I mean." I, 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 and he says, no, I'm just not going to pay the rent. I don't know what the problem is. You're like, listen, is there, do we have a problem here? He says, no, there's no problem here. I'm just not going to pay the rent. Not now, not ever. And you're like, dude, like, I, I own the house you're living in. I'm the landlord. You are the tenant. You're living in my house. You have to pay rent. And he says, dude, whoa, take it easy, man. Like, I don't have a, I don't have a problem with you. I think very highly of you. I like a lot of the things that you say. You and I are, as far as I'm concerned, you and I are in great on great terms. We have a great relationship, but I'm not going to pay rent. Not now, not ever. But everything's cool between us. There's no hostility. I think very highly of you. You'd respond, yeah, it doesn't work like that. Like, I understand what you're saying, that you uh, think highly of me, and that you respect me, and that you understand us to be on good terms. But this is an act of aggression. <laughs> you are aggressively, like, den- like, you are saying that you don't acknowledge my role. I have claimed to be the homeowner, and I've claimed to have authority over this house and over your living in it. And if you're saying that you, like, you can't, you, you, we're not indifferent and we're not on good terms, right? This is an act of, of aggression. Jesus doesn't have acquaintances. He doesn't have people that he is indifferent to. He doesn't have people that he is on reasonably good terms with, but they live their own lives apart from him. Jesus has his people who see him for what he is, acknowledge him for what he is, trust in him, love him, obey him. He died for them to forgive their sin. They walk with him. They fall at his feet and call him Lord. And Jesus has enemies, people who shut him up for a fool or spit at him and kill him as a demon. There's no middle ground. There's no uh, neutrality. Our task this morning is to see Jesus rightly as he claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, and then it is to uh, respond accordingly, right? Will we dismiss Jesus outright as a lunatic? Will we hate him, despise him, do violence to him, strike him, stand in judgment over him, sub? submit him to public or subject him to to public disgrace 
like the soldiers and elders and chief priests and scribes? Or will we trust in Him and bow before Him as as Lord and, and obey Him and turn from our sin and trust in Him and walk with Him and enjoy His fellowship and enjoy intimacy with Him until one day He gathers us to Himself and we can experience Him face to face, enjoying the unmediated presence of God for all of eternity. Jesus has told us who He is. Our task is to take Him at His word and then decide how we're going to respond. Lord Jesus, we aspire to be people who acknowledge your authority, sit under your authority, people who let you speak for yourself and make claims to who you really are instead of presuming to know and say who you are. Lord, we we acknowledge with you that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promises. You are the Son of Man, the Son of God, defeating your enemies, ruling over your people. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to see you rightly and to respond to you appropriately by trusting you and obeying you and walking with you your glory and for our joy. It's in Christ's name that we